Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. If you or your child does go on the mission trip, uh, the tattoos are not included. Those are extra charge and uh, (laughs) no promises on whether your child will or will not get a tattoo. But anyways. Yesterday on a podcast, I heard about a vacation that I think any busy person needs to add to their bucket list. And so I went online to read more about it. I went to a website, www.travelandleisure.com. And this is what they said. They say, when the stress and fatigue of the daily grind gets to you, who among us has not dreamed of being locked away from all human contact? The wish is a reality in South Korea. Now, just to remind you, South Korea is the free Korea, the happy Korea, okay? That's important to notice with what we're just about to say. So the wish is a reality in South Korea. The name of the vacation is Prison Inside Me. It is a hotel of sorts. It's a prison. All right, it's a prison. I've seen pictures. It's a hotel of sorts in South Korea where people pay to be locked away in solitary confinement for 24 hours. Inside, jailmates wear matching uniforms, sleep in 54 square foot cells, and are forbidden from speaking to each other. Minimal meals, a a steamed sweet potato and banana shake for dinner, rice porridge for breakfast, are fed through a slot in their cell door. And then I think this part's maybe the most attractive part of it for people. Cell phones and clocks are prohibited inside the walls of the prison. Everybody sleeps on the floor. Participants can pay about $90 to be kept in solitary confinement for 24 hours, away from the stressors of the outside world. More than 2,000 people have stayed at the prison since it opened in 2013. Most of those who opt for the unusual vacation are stressed out workers and students. And then it ends with this, and I think it's profound. After a stay in the prison, people say, This is not a prison. The real prison is where we return to. 90 bucks a night. I think you could get that for free if you just did a little mischievous stuff, probably not godly stuff, but humanity is desperate for peace, aren't we? We're so desperate that 2,000 people pay to go stay in solitary confinement, to be forced to be cut off from the rest of the world. You know, really, until this week, until I really meditate on it, I really didn't realize how primal our need is for peace. You know, why do we buy lake houses? Why do we go up to Door County? It's because we want places of peace. Why do we do counseling? Because we want peace within our soul. 
Why do we, what do we seek in our marriages? We want peace with one another. What do we pray for during a 10-hour car ride with children? Lord, give us peace on earth and in this car. What do we want at Christmas gatherings with family? We want family peace. When I worked at a golf course in St. Louis when I was in same seminary, my, the golf pro there asked me this question. It was really the only spiritual conversation we ever had. He said to me, does your religion give you peace? That's what he was looking for. You know, I don't know if I can say peace is the primary longing of our hearts, but it's got to be up there near the top. And yet peace is so elusive, isn't it? I mean, how many of you, I think if we're all honest, how many of you here fight with fear? How many of you struggle with anxiety How many of you struggle to fall asleep at night because there's so much on your brain? Peace is a commodity that many of the people in the world would trade their fortune for, and yet it is so hard to find. I mean, if you could package peace in a bottle and sell it for $10, you would be the richest person in the world. Everybody would buy it. In today's passage, Jesus makes a promise to all who love him. To give the peace all of us are grasping for. And the good news is Jesus offers it to us free of charge. If you would please open up to John chapter 14. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. A red Bible. If you don't own a Bible, that is for you to keep. It's page, uh, our passage is on page 901 of the Red Bible. Again, just a reminder, Jesus is in the upper room with his apostles. It is after the Passover meal. Within 24 hours, Jesus is going to be brutally beaten, and he's going to be hung on a cross to die. Jesus knows this, and so he is preparing his apostles, telling them that he is going away, but also seeking to comfort them. And yet, in the midst of it, the apostles, as you can imagine, are confused. They're afraid. And they're anxious. And so Jesus, which is just so amazing, who is just sitting in the shadow of this horrific death, is so loving that he turns to comfort his disciples and to tell them that he is going to give them a peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding. A peace that is greater than all of our troubles. And a peace that satisfies our anxious souls. And so let's read of this piece. If you would just follow along, John chapter 14, verse 27 through 31. Jesus says this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let's pray. Lord, 
We are an anxious people. We are a people that are often troubled by other people, by circumstances. We become fearful, Lord. There is much of our life, maybe even this morning, that would not have been characterized by peace. And yet, Lord, we acknowledge that peace is something our hearts so desperately long for. And so, God, pray that you would help us to receive your peace this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I would, I'd consider myself a pretty laid-back person. I don't know if you'd agree if you knew me, but there are still things that make me anxious in life. Things like unresolved conflict, like putting together a coherent message for you all every Sunday morning. Like, how will I stand up emotionally and mentally as the darkness of winter continues on through January, February, March, April? When was our last snowstorm last year? May, maybe, I don't know. What makes you anxious? Afraid? What's taking up too much space in your head and in your heart? Maybe it's your finances. Maybe your health or the health of a loved one. Maybe it's a strained relationship. Could be school, could be work. I know for many of you, what causes you anxiety is past mistakes. For others of you, it's your future plans. For others of you, it's, it's your present mess. <laughs> Maybe all of these cause you anxiety. Maybe I'm raising your anxiety level just by mentioning all of this stuff. Friends, Jesus not only addresses troubled and anxious disciples because he knows it's going to be a problem that they will wrestle with, Jesus addresses problem or troubled and anxious apostles because Jesus knows that real peace is coming. Today, Jesus gives us this great promise to all who love him. He says, peace I live, leave with you. My peace I give to you. Now, as Jesus talks about this matter of peace, there are three kinds of peace that he talks about. I'm not sure kinds is the right word, but three, three types, three kinds of peace that are out there. The first is worldly peace. Verse 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. And so Jesus says he gives peace in a way that is unlike the way that the world gives peace. And so the question is, how does the world give peace? Well, as I, I actually searched the word peace in all of Scripture, read through it, and considered just my own experience in life, and there are two characteristics of worldly peace that kept surfacing. The first is that worldly peace is always an unstable peace. The reason that we can say this is because worldly peace is always dependent on unstable people. <laughs> it's dependent on unstable circumstances. Worldly peace is not a bad peace. It's a good peace. I mean, we want peace on earth, right? But it is an unstable peace. God even commands us to pursue worldly peace. Romans 12, Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
1 Thessalonians 5, talking to the church, he says, be at peace among yourselves. And so Paul is saying, hey, pursue this worldly peace amongst one another. And so it's not a bad peace, but we know how quickly it can be disrupted with a harsh word, a, a, a misunderstood text message, a roll of the eyes. Worldly peace is not bad peace, but it is unstable peace. It's circumstantial peace. You know, we, we want physical peace. Internationally, we want it, and we try to achieve it through diplomacy and through our military. But they still exist because they're still unrest. We try to, we try to get peace, physical peace, locally through through laws that govern our country, through the law enforcement, and yet they still have jobs because why? That peace is so unstable. We seek out financial peace. Again, not a bad thing to do. We are called to be wise stewards of the gifts God has given to us. But all it takes is a bad day on the stock market or a client that leaves us or maybe we lose our job And our financial peace evaporates in front of our eyes. We most certainly want relational peace. Again, in our household, happy wife, happy life, right? We want to have good relationships with our kids. We want our kids to have good relationships with one another. And at times they do. But if you're ever with someone more than, you know, five hours, that peace is going to be tested. And so worldly peace not a bad peace, but it's such an unstable peace. Worldly peace is also, it's always unstable, and it's often unfounded. Meaning that it has no foundation or no basis to it at all. It's kind of like the ostrich approach, you know, when trouble strikes, just stick your head in the sand, pretend like nothing happened. Jeremiah 6 The Lord says that they have healed the wounds of my people. Talking about the the, uh, leaders of Israel. They have healed the wounds of my people lightly. Saying, peace, peace. When there is no peace. This unfounded peace is often promoted through songs. For example, from the 1990s. The Disney movie, you may remember from Lion King. Akuna Matata, right? Akuna Matata. What a wonderful phrase. Are you laughing at the song or am I singing? I'm not sure. (laughs) Akuna Matata, ain't no passing craze. Means no worries for the rest of your days. It's, stop laughing at me. (laughs) It's our problem-free philosophy. Akuna Matata. See, Thank you, thank you, thank you. One, thanks, Mom. Um, Disney knows, as well as everybody else, that everybody is longing for peace, and their solution is a catchy jingle. Go back. Late 80s, Bob McFerrin said, ain't got no place to lay your head. Somebody came and took your bed. Do you know what comes next? Don't worry. Be happy now. The landlords say you rent, your rent is late. He may have to litigate. Don't worry. Be happy. Going back earlier, early 80s, Bob Marley. 
Don't worry about a thing because every little thing is going to be all right. Anybody know the title to that song? What? Three Little Birds. Good job. I did not know that till yesterday. You can tell when peace is unfounded because it cannot stand up to the question, why? Why should I not worry about a thing? Why should I be happy? I mean, statements like these may bring comfort to someone who, you know, I don't know, stubbed their toe. But when you go below the surface of them, they have no answer in terms of bringing peace when you are in real trouble. I mean, imagine if you go to a father who has just lost his job. And he doesn't know how he's going to pay for his mortgage. He doesn't know how he's going to pay for food for his family. And you come alongside him. You put your arm around him and you say, Akuna Matata. Like, what's that going to do to him? He's going to say, what are you talking about? Don't worry. Be happy. It's all going to be okay. What's he going to say? He's going to say, you mean you're going to pay for my mortgage? You're going to pay for my kids to eat? Like, you're going to buy them food? No, 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 no. Just... Every little thing, it's going to be all right, right? There's no substance to what he's telling you. It's just a trite saying. He's going to say, you're crazy. Akuna Matata does not pay the bills. You know, so often people, well-intentioned people, will come in the midst of despair, and they will simply say, it's going to be okay. And if you ask why, sometimes they'll have a good answer. Sometimes there will be substance. But sometimes they'll just, I don't know, it's going to be okay. (laughs) Maybe you're here today and you have been searching for peace all your life. And you get it at glimpses in time, but it always seems to escape you. Could it be because you are searching for peace in unstable people and in unstable circumstances? Or you have looked for peace in unfounded philosophy that has no basis below the top level? Friends, worldly peace is not a bad peace, but it is always an unstable peace. And it is often an unfounded peace. And because this, it is never a soul-satisfying peace. Again, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. And so as we continue to read, we continue to read about the peace that Jesus gives. And Jesus gives a peace that is not shifting, that is not situational, that is not temporary, that's not unstable, that's not unfounded. But Jesus gives a secure peace, a stable peace, a rooted peace, a soul peace satisfying peace. And he talks about that peace in two ways. First, as a heavenly peace. You know, as Christmas uh, comes near, or sorry, it's not Christmas. As Christ announces the hour of his departure coming near, uh, it's interesting to see that the apostles are freaking out a little bit. They're anxious. They're afraid. And yet Jesus seems calm as a cucumber, And he's telling them why they should be at peace, why they can have peace. And the question is, why is that? Why is Jesus, the one who's about to be tortured and killed, the one who's at peace when all of the apostles who are not about to be tortured and killed in the next 24 hours are freaking out? 
Either Jesus has lost his marbles or Jesus knows something that they don't. Look at verse 28 with me. Jesus says, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. Remember that for in a little bit. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. There are two reasons in this passage in all of John 14 as we'll see that Jesus says that they should be at peace with Jesus going away and they should even rejoice at his departure. The first reason they should be at peace and they should rejoice at Jesus going away is for Jesus' sake. See, Jesus is going home to be with his father. His Abba father, who he was in intimate relationship with all eternity, peaceful relationship. And he had come to earth. I mean, can you imagine leaving the perfection and glory of heaven to come to earth and walk amongst broken people for 30 years? I mean, how homesick would you be? Jesus tells his apostles that they should rejoice on Jesus' behalf because Jesus is going home to the one whom he most loves and whom most loves him. You know, there are a few things that make me cry like a baby, but one of those things that makes me cry like a baby are those videos of military dads coming back from deployment and surprising their kids. I don't know if you've ever seen these. One of them is burned into my mind uh, above all the rest, and it's this dad who, who walks into his child's classroom at school, and his child looks up and just freezes, just freezes for a second or two, and then drops all his stuff and just melts and goes running to his dad and is weeping. And he's not, he doesn't care about looking macho in front of his friends. His dad is there. He wants to be with his father. You know, this is a shadow of what it's like for Jesus to return to his father. And so he's calling them to rejoice. I mean, carry this illustration just a step farther. Imagine this, this father that returns home. Imagine just a week before he's on deployment and his buddy in the military says, you know, the flights are kind of uncomfortable. You know, there's a time change. There'll be a jet lag. And, you know, we're going to miss you. Why don't you just skip that and stay here? What, what would he say to that guy? He would say, friend, maybe friend. He'd say, Listen, if you truly love me, you will rejoice that I am going home. Christian, as, Chris, as at Christmas, we rejoice at the coming of Jesus. But have you ever rejoiced at the going of Jesus for Jesus' sake? I, I don't think I ever have until this week where I have rejoiced that Christ got to go home to be with the Father. It's what Jesus is saying. Rejoice for me because I get to go home and be with dad. And so the first reason the apostles should rejoice that Jesus is going away is for Jesus' sake. But the second reason is for their own sake. Look at how verse 28 starts. It says, you heard me say to you. Jesus is referring to something he said earlier in the conversation. We actually get to read about it in verses 1 through 3. So look at verse 1 through 3 with me in John 14. Jesus said this, Let not your hearts be troubled, echoing what we hear today in our passage. 
It says, believe in God, believe also in me. I love this. Jesus is saying, listen, we're up to something good, all right? Believe it. Believe that we can do this. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go? And then he tells us a reason that he goes. This is so important. To prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. That's that phrase that I told you, remember, that's up in verse 28. It says, I will come for you and will take you to myself, that where I am in my Father's house, you may be also. Here's what Jesus knows that the apostles are not understanding, that unless Jesus goes away, unless Jesus goes to the Father's house, they will never be able to follow him there. That their destination will never be heaven, but it will be hell. See, in John 14, Jesus also says, I am the way. Jesus is the way because he made a way to get back to the Father, to get back home, to get back to heaven. And so they should rejoice, not only for Jesus' sake, but for their own sake, because that means that this broken, unpeaceful life is not all that there is, but that we are destined for shalom, to go back and to be at peace with the Father for all eternity. You know, to carry my earlier illustration just one step further, you know, the military father is going home. The buddy says, don't go home. You know, you'll be jet lagged. The flight, it'll be cramped, you know, and we'll miss you. And the father would say, listen, if you truly love me, you will rejoice that I am going home. Plus, it's only a matter of time. You are coming home too. And we get to dwell together at home. In the sake of what Christ is saying, it is for all eternity. Friends, can you see why Jesus is hopeful and joyful and peaceful while the apostles are anxious and afraid and troubled? I actually wrote this out because I think I needed to get it straight, but I think seeing it is also helpful. The apostles are anxious Because while they are aware of heaven, they are absorbed with their troubles. Jesus is at peace because while he is aware of his troubles, he is absorbed with heaven. Do you see the difference between the two? God is not calling us to brush our troubles under the rug, to ignore them, to akuna matata them. Matter of fact, God calls us to grieve over the brokenness of the world. But in the midst of grief, if we are simply aware of our troubles, but absorbed by heaven, we will have a peace that transcends all understanding. Romans 8, we see this in Paul. He says, for I consider that the suffering of this present time, Paul suffered a lot. Said the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Colossians 3, 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. You know, I was talking to a friend who was uh, in, a, in, a, in a really bad spot where they were in fear for their life. And they were going to bed, not really sure if they would wake up the next day. And so they cried out to God and said, Lord, I trust you. If it's my time, it's my time. 
And then they went to sleep. They went to sleep. And in, in the face of, of death, potentially at their door, they went to sleep. I mean, that's, that's peace that you cannot fake. How is it that they could sleep in the shadow of death? The only logical conclusion is that they were aware of their troubles, but absorbed with the hope of heaven. Christian, what is making you anxious? What is troubling your soul? And Jesus is not calling you to minimize it, but he's calling you to look at your current troubles with an eternal perspective. Because of the Holy Spirit, we can be aware of heaven and absorbed with our troubles, which makes us anxious. Or we can be aware of our troubles, even grieved by them, and be absorbed with the hope of our home in heaven for all eternity and be at peace. So just to recap, worldly peace is always unstable. It's often unfounded. Christ's peace, which is stable and sure, is a heavenly peace, but it's also a sovereign peace. Look at verse 29 with me. Jesus says, And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. So what's the it? (laughs) The cross. It's a pretty big it. His torture, his betrayal, his beating, his suffocation, his death. He says, I'm going to tell you about it now so that when it does happen, you may believe. What does he want them to believe? Verse 30, he says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. Let's pause there. Who's the ruler of the world? Satan is, right? Jesus is affirming that Satan is hard at work trying to put him to death. Matter of fact, we read in last chapter, Jesus says, whoever I give this morsel of bread to is the one who's going to betray me. And then Jesus gives it to Judas. And it says, after Judas took the morsel of bread, Satan entered into him. Now we may say, oh, poor Judas, but Judas was a willing participant. And so the question is, who put Jesus to death? Did Satan put Jesus to death? Did Judas put Jesus to death? Did the Jewish officials put Jesus to death? Did the Roman government put him to death? Who put Jesus to death? And the answer is yes. All of them conspired to put Jesus to death. And at the same time, the answer is no. Yes, it is true that they conspired to put Jesus to death and they are all guilty concerning his death. But they were not the ultimate reason that Jesus died. Look at verse 30 with me again. Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. Again, talking about Satan. And then he says this, he has no claim on me. Literally, He has nothing on me. He has no accusations against me. He has no power over me. He has nothing on me. Verse 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. The cross of Christ was Satan's plan to eliminate peace. 
But it was also the Father's sovereign plan to secure peace. Jesus tells his apostles that he's going to be crucified so that when he is hanging on the cross, when they are mocking him, spitting at him, that they know that Satan has not won the day, but that this horrific tragedy is the sovereign plan of a loving God. And that Jesus went to the cross to be obedient to the Father because he loves the Father. You see, all of us are born anxious and troubled souls because we are all born enemies of God. We are afraid of God because we have rebelled against God. We have warred against God. And whether we acknowledge or not, we are under the condemnation, the just condemnation of God. And so there is no peace for us apart from Christ. But then Christ comes as the Prince of Peace to give peace to all who love them, love him. And the peace that Jesus gives to us costs us nothing, but it costs him everything. You see, friends, the price of peace is the prince of peace. Jesus can tell his apostles, fear not and not let your hearts be troubled, because at the cross, Jesus takes on our greatest trouble. What is our greatest trouble? Sin is our greatest trouble. At the cross, Jesus takes on our greatest fear. What is our greatest fear? The wrath of God poured on our sin. Jesus takes on our sin, takes on our wrath so that we can now be at peace with God, the very thing our soul most longs for. Colossians 1 says this, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Christ To reconcile, that's peace language, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And then it says, making peace by the blood of his cross. How did Jesus make peace? How does Jesus give us peace? By the blood of his cross. He goes on, he says, and you, talking to Christians, you who once were alienated, And hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You see, friends, until we have peace with God, we will never have the peace of God. Until we are vertically at peace with the God of the universe, we will never have peace in our souls that Jesus promises here. You know, I know many of you are going through some very difficult things. And you're probably tempted to believe that God has left you or that God has lost control or that God is just inattentive and and doesn't care. I'm sure the apostles had the same thoughts when Jesus died. But friends... When we look at the cross, what we learn is that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, in the midst of evil, the opposite is true. You see, the cross proves to us through the greatest evil ever happening in human history that even in the midst of something so wicked as putting our creator to death, that God is in sovereign control. This was the plan of God. 
that God is still loving. God, God did this for our salvation, that God is still good. Even in this wickedness, we know God is good because he did this to reconcile us to himself so that we can have peace with God and now the peace of God. Friends, when tragedy strikes your life, you have two options. The first option is to believe that God is not sovereign, that he's not in control, that he is powerless or inattentive. The second option is to believe that God is sovereign, that God is in control. And although this thing is not good, it is a part of his good plan. You see, whichever one you choose, you will be left with questions that you won't be able to answer this side of eternity. But only one of those options is biblical, and only one of those options can comfort our soul. God's sovereignty over all things gives us peace because we don't need to control everything. We can't control it anyways. It gives us peace because God is in control and we are not, even in the midst of suffering and pain. Let me end with this. I've shared this story before, but I think it's such a beautiful picture of the peace that Christ promises and that Christ gives Horatio Spafford was a successful Chicago lawyer in the 1860s. And he had the American dream. Uh, he had everything everyone would want. He had, he had lots of money. He had a wife. He had several children. But then tragedy struck his home. First, his only beloved son died of scarlet fever at the age of four. A year later, his large real estate investment burned to the ground in the Chicago fire. Shortly after that, he decided that he and his, his family needed to get away, and so he decided that they would take a trip to England, he and his four daughters that remained, and his wife. As they were getting ready to go, there was some last-minute business that came up, so he had to stay behind, and he was going to join them later. And what he heard, probably in the newspaper, I don't know, but is that the, that the ship that he put his family on had sank. Nine days after sending his family away, he receives a telegram from his wife, just two words, saved alone. This means all three of his daughters died, or four daughters died in the shipwreck. Needless to say, he was overwhelmed with grief. He packed up and headed over to England to go and be with his wife and bring her back. And as they were going over the spot where the boat sank, where his four daughters perish, the, the captain of the ship pointed it out. Horatio went back to his cabin, opened the scriptures, and received the peace of Jesus, and penned one of the most famous hymns that we know, the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And do you remember how that hymn begins? When peace, like a river, attendeth my way. Whatever my lot. I mean, this is like, this is a bad lot. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And then he says, when, when sorrow like sea billows roll. These were not separable things. The peace of God and sorrow. And he says, though Satan should buffet. That means pound. You ever feel like that? Satan's pounding against your life? 
with this blessed assurance and control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. You see, it's because he had peace with God that he could now have the peace of God no matter what happens. And then there is this verse that we don't sing today. Um, and it says this, Thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. And then Horatio finishes, as we will sing, And Lord, haste the day when the face shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. God had given him the peace of the hope of heaven. You see, even though he was keenly aware and grieving of his current troubles, at that moment he was absorbed with the hope of heaven and the sovereignty of God. Friends, where are you struggling to find peace in your soul? Be absorbed with heaven as your home and know that God is sovereign and he is good even in the midst of tragedy. Let's pray. Hmm. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are Prince of Peace came to be the price of peace. That we might be reconciled with a holy God. And through that reconciliation may have peace in our soul. Whatever may come. Lord, help us to appropriate this peace. To, to rest on this peace. To enjoy this peace. In little things and big things, Lord. God, as we come to your table, help remind us of the peace that you have secured for us, Lord. As we turn to the table, remind us of the banquet that awaits for us in heaven where there will be no more sadness, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Only shalom, only peace for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.